All right, John chapter number six. Again, John chapter number six. And I want you to go with me to verse number 60. And uh, we have arrived at the last section of this chapter. And uh, I'm not sure we'll get through this entire section, but this last section between verse 60 and verse 71 uh, will simply entitle it The Words of Eternal Life. The Words of Eternal Life. Uh, John 6 has been, uh, to use this expression, has been a mini-series within the exposition of the entire book. We've been dealing with coming to Christ, and we've looked at the various aspects of coming to Christ. And we've arrived at a place where uh, Jesus, for the most part, has, is bringing this sermon to a conclusion. Uh, he's not preaching in the sense of what we see today, where he's, he's not standing behind a pulpit. He's not standing before a congregation of people, but he's standing uh, amongst a people of listeners. They are gathered around him. And in these final verses of this chapter, uh, there is a separation that occurs. It is not a separation so much that the Lord is doing. It is a separation that some people who have claimed to be followers of him will now remove themselves from him. They're going to say, we no longer want to be associated with you. It is not Jesus pushing them away. It is themselves saying, we are no longer going to follow you. Now, you'll recall that last week uh, we left off with Jesus giving some of the hardest to explain and hardest to understand words. Jesus had been uh, giving them phrases such as, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And he began to say, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. And those statements became very offensive. As a matter of fact, they become so offensive that people begin to say, listen, I'm not sure what this is about, uh, but uh, I think we're going to turn back now. You've reached a level uh, where we just can no longer follow you. If you look at verse number 60, notice what the Bible says, and I've got the first word circled. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Or in other words, who can understand this? Who can possibly comprehend what this man is saying? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, I'm going to stop there because there's, there's a natural break in who he's speaking of here. He is speaking to not the twelve. Because you see in verse 67, then said Jesus unto the twelve. There are the twelve disciples that are here, but then there are also others who claim to be his disciples. We often read the Bible and we think every time the word disciple is mentioned that it's one of the twelve. 
In the day and age in which Jesus walked this earth, he had many people who claimed to be disciples, who claimed to be followers. But we've learned through their study in the book of John that there were many people who just followed Jesus because of what he could give them. They followed because he could perform miracles. They followed because he could feed them. They followed because Jesus was, uh, in other words, Jesus was something that could give, he could give them something. We look at this today and we say, well, that's in Jesus's day. Uh, This is just as true today as it was then. There are people you will run into who in your day-to-day life, you may run into them on the job, you'll run into them in other functions, who will say, yes, we're followers of Christ. Yes, we believe Jesus Christ. We're, we're, We're right behind him. But when the offensive side of Jesus comes out, and again, when I say offensive, what Jesus said about eating of his flesh is not offensive to the believer. The true believer is not offended by what Jesus said. It is the believer who is believer in name only. And for so many years, we've been afraid to name them. We've been afraid to say, listen, is it possible? Is it possible that our churches have people who are followers and disciples in name only? And I would tell you that is more prevalent than what you care to know. See, follower is not just one who is just kind of there. A disciple is not one who just kind of says, what can Jesus do for me today? A disciple is one whose desire is to be taught of the Lord and is to be under uh, his guidance. Now we see that there's this natural break in these disciples. And I'm going to read this, the rest of this text. And I want you to see that there's a difference in who he was speaking to. But look what it says in verse number 67. Jesus asked this 12 the same question. And Jesus said unto the twelve, will ye also go away? It wasn't unheard of for him to ask the question of the twelve disciples, are you going to be offended at this too? Do my sayings offend you? Do my sayings lead you to want to go away like these other disciples? And look what Peter says in verse 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter gives the right answer. Peter says, if we were to not follow you, where would we go? If we were to to desert and go away, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter understood that the words in which Jesus said were words of eternal life. They were words that indicated the possession of an eternal life, but also what is proclaimed as eternal life. It is through Christ alone. Peter goes on, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, or art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you think this would not have alarmed them, look at what Jesus responds with. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now, you think about being one of the 12 standing there, and Jesus announces this remarkable statement. Here's the 12 who who actually claim to be, they're the ones in the inner circle. They're the ones who are the closest, and he's got the 12, and he says to them, I've chosen all of you, and one of you is the devil. One of you is the devil. And thus, we look at it, we look at Scripture backwards. And we've said this often, we we have the advantage of looking back and seeing how things turned out. 
And it's so easy for us today in our modern age to look back and say, oh, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been alarming. Oh, this would have alarmed you had you been one of the 12 standing there. And he's looking all 12 of you in the face and he says, and one of you is a devil. But here's the remarkable thing. He says, I chose all of you. And one of you is a devil. Now, that's mind blown right there. What's, why would Jesus choose a devil? Yet, that in itself is an offensive statement. Jesus is, is testing them to some extent. He spoke of Judas Iscariot. How would you like to be named for all of eternity? The one who was the devil. Now, he doesn't tell the 12 disciples that. Okay, we have that advantage. He didn't say, one of you is a devil. Judas, it's you. We know that. They didn't know that. Jesus said, he spake of Jesus Iscariot, Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. See, this conversation is very profound because here you have the disciples, the many disciples who were just followers in name only. The Bible says many of them turned away and never came back. Yet he turns to the ones who everybody recognized. These are the 12 disciples of Jesus. These are his real followers. But yet Jesus tells them one of them's the devil. I want you to mark that expression of Peter in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter's testimony was really a number of things he was testifying to. Number one, he believed that all converting grace, all of his conversion unto Christ and his salvation was in Christ alone. Peter does not offer anything to add to it. He simply says, we know and are sure that you are that Christ. This is why we preach Christ alone at this church. This is why we take such a strong stand on that because there is no other, way, other place to go, no other person to go who has the words of eternal life. You could search high and low. You could go to any place in this world and you will never find anyone else who has the words of eternal life other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Today as a believer, you must be sure and believe that Jesus Christ is that Christ, the Son of the living God. This is not just some, I acknowledge Jesus lived, I acknowledge Jesus uh, might have been a real individual, that He is the source of all converting grace. The difference between a real disciple and one who turned back is right there. Because without the words of eternal life, you simply have an emptiness. At the same time Peter's making this confession, or this, this testimony, there are people who profess to be his followers who said the exact opposite in verse 60. Jesus said, or Peter said, where else could we go? The disciples who are mentioned in verse 60 say, this is a hard saying. Who can know this? Well, the answer to that question is those who can know that are the ones who are his children. They understand that. They understand that Jesus Christ is the only way. Today, folks, I have no question in my mind about the source of salvation. I have no question about why I'm saved. I don't know, I don't know why he allowed me to be saved. I have no clue. 
But I'm certain that he is that Christ. He is that Christ. Everything else is false. This hard saying, as a result of those hard sayings, verse 66 tells us, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You know, often we can take verses like this and we can try to guilt people. This isn't a a guilt statement. This is fact. The offensive statement drove the false disciple away. The best way to know the difference between a real disciple and a a real disciple and a false follower is what they think about Christ. That's it. You want to know where someone stands doctrinally? Ask them what they think about Christ. That question that goes out through the Bible, what think ye of Christ? Today, the question is, is what, are you, what, what will you do with the Baptist denomination? Or the question is, what will you do with Christ? Who is Christ to you? And if he's just someone who gives you all that you want, and he just provides for you, and he's there when you get in trouble, that's not that Christ. He does all those things. But that's not who he is. This Christ has the words of eternal life. Peter's confession of Christ, and as Christ speaks to the other disciples in the face of an exodus of people, you've got to try to put yourself in that situation. Literally, I think the disciples, from what the Bible says, they saw this happening. You know, think about this. I don't know where exactly it was, but think about a group of people standing and all of a sudden people who had been following Jesus in this throng, the 12 disciples are standing there watching this and this mass exodus of people all of a sudden who had been there now left. And then he turns to them and he says, are you going to do the same thing they're going to do? You know, it's, you know the, the, the danger is following the large crowd. And I think we as believers, we need to understand that. We are so caught up in things that are not uh, crucial to the, to the Christian life and they're not crucial to the believer's life. And we think the crowd's going that way. So that's the way I better go because they must know something that we don't know. That's not the case at all. Be careful of large crowds going one direction. The Bible goes, gives no indication that large crowds were the ones who were actually the real followers. We know even those 12 in their humanity, when Jesus was finally allowed himself to be taken, even those 12 professing disciples, minus Judas, who was the betrayer from the foundation of the world, they all deserted him. When he asked the question, will you go away? Right there, they were standing. Peter says, again, get this, don't give Peter a hard time. Peter said, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Yet when Jesus is taken, guess who one of the deserters is? Peter, and I believe Peter was sincere, I believe Peter was converted, I believe Peter meant what he was saying, but when the offensive time of the cross came, every one of those disciples bolted. And Peter's faith, this is probably more like our faith at that time, was so flimsy that when people asked, do you know him? He said, I don't know him, that even when a little girl asked Peter, you've been with him, I don't know that man. 
See, we're, we're real quick to throw stones at these disciples thinking, boy, if I was in their day and age, I would have stood with Jesus. You would have, you would have fled just like Peter did. But we're so strong in our faith now, we think that I'm a real follower of Christ. Have you ever been actually offended to where you're given that option? Hey, this is offensive. I don't know if I can stand for Christ anymore. It looks like the whole world's turning on Christ. I, I'm going to go with the crowd. You see, we don't know in this country because you're really not under any real threat. Oh, we're trying to be martyrs and we're trying to say how rough we have it in this country. We don't know difficulty. We do not even know what it is to have to stand for the cause of Christ in this country. As bad as you think it is, it's not that bad. We look at it and say, boy, we're being, we're being martyred in this country. We don't even know what we're talking about. The real offending hasn't even started yet. The real separating hasn't even started. The real, hey, are you really one of my followers? Are you going to go away also? It hasn't even started yet. It's easy to stand here in a comfortable building and say, yeah, Christ has the words of eternal life. Why would I leave him? Well, maybe the real offensive things hasn't happened yet. They were offended just by the words he spoke. Others are going to be offended by what's happening these disciples all desire to stand with him. I believe that other than Judas. We know why Judas was there. Judas 6, or Judas 6, John 6, contains some of the most powerful doctrine you're going to find. Because it does tell us what Jesus is giving an indication of what's getting ready to happen. What's getting ready to happen is the real offensive time is coming. He's even naming the one. He's telling us the one who is the devil. Here's who he is. It's Judas. We have the privilege of knowing it. They didn't know. They just knew that out of one of us, one of them is going to betray him. One of them is a devil. You see, when we think about our salvation and we think about the Bible text in the scripture that declares so clearly what man's salvation is based upon, John 6 gives us the clearest picture of that. What is it? It is the, it is the glorious grace of God that we continue in our mind to try to humanly put it in a, in a bow that can be easily wrapped up and given and say, here's what it is, but understand that wrapped up within the grace of God is this wonderful election of God that we do not fully comprehend. It's a doctrine that people are offended at. I could walk into a lot of Baptist churches today and I can offend them just by preaching on election. Matter of fact, I probably would be stopped mid-sermon. They would say, we don't believe that around there. And the question would be, does that offend you? Why would the glorious gospel of God's grace offend you? Why would be giving God all the glory for your salvation? Why does that offend you? Because man so badly wants to make a God of his own imagination and a God of his own desire and picture. I want God to be what I want God to be, not who he really is. 
You see, man can, possess, can say he possesses eternal life. He can say, I believe the words of eternal life, but the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ himself is the totality of eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. You realize your salvation is not based upon your profession. You need to think on that just a minute, what I just said. Your salvation is not based upon your profession. There are lots of professing believers in this world. Profession does not mean you have the words of eternal life. Jesus Christ is the totality of eternal life. That's what Peter was acknowledging. This is a hard saying. These disciples in verses 60 and 62, a disciple in its purest sense is a learner or a follower. Those disciples in verses 60 and 62 are carefully distinguished from the 12. Again, as we've mentioned, they were people who followed Christ. They were attracted by the miracles, but they didn't really believe him. And what's interesting is the Bible said he didn't even commit himself to them because he knew from the beginning in verse 64 who they were that believed not. Not only do they not commit themselves to Christ, he didn't commit himself himself to them. Back in John 6.26, the Bible says, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. Jesus knows the motive. These professors or these disciples, they had a false allegiance. One minute they would make Jesus king. The next minute they're leaving him. Those same disciples had heard about the gospel in verses 29 through 35. Those same false believers believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation in verses 37 through 45 of John 6. They heard the same messages of salvation through a living union with Christ by faith in verses 48 through 59. And yet their response was this, we are unable to comprehend these sayings. These are too hard for us to understand. His language was not understandable to them. What Jesus said made no sense to those false disciples. Now, folks, I'm not telling you this morning that in order to be a child of God, you have to be a, a theologian, that you have to know the ins and outs of the Scripture. You have to know everything there is to know from Genesis to Revelation. If that was the demand, then I'm, I'm unsaved. I, to this day, I don't really truly know a third of this. If we really understood what the message of the scriptures are from Genesis to Revelation, we would realize that if we were required to be a theologian to be in Christ, we'd all be in trouble. I can rattle off to you, and you can too, probably nine other things you know more about in totality than the Word of God. You're an expert in a lot of things. I could, you could rattle off some, some obscure numbers that nobody else knows. But when we try to understand what the Scripture is, we don't even know half of what this book really contains. 
If Jesus said being a follower means you got to know it all, we're all excluded. A disciple is a follower and a learner. Your life as a believer is to be continually sitting under the teaching at the feet of Christ, learning this book and learning about this God. A disciple always learns. When you get to the point where you're unteachable, you're useless. If you ever have a preacher that's unteachable, it's worthless. There is no pastor, preacher, evangelist, missionary, there's nobody on this planet that knows all there is about to know all the know about God. It's a continual learning. We're so quick to say, I know what this is, I know about it. No. Just be thankful you possess the words of eternal life that Jesus Christ in his totality has saved you by his grace and didn't require you to know everything about him before he let you in. I mean, you think about it. We'll give our hearts and our minds to everything else. But if we're honest with ourselves today, we don't give to God and his word as much as we should. In John 5, 40, Jesus had also made a statement about those who would not come to him. We've covered all this. This is, this is review. He said in verse 39 of John 5, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Wow, there's that stubborn will of man. These were scholars of the Bible. Okay, and I'm, I'm taking you back somewhere. Remember I just told you, if God made it a requirement to know the Scriptures to be in Him, Jesus said those words to the religious experts. He says, you know everything there is to know, but you won't come to me. Then again, we see this picture. They were blind to the most important aspect. Jesus is that Christ. See, even if you did devote yourself to the study of the Word of God and you knew it cover to cover, yet Jesus Christ was not the totality of your salvation, you'd still be unsaved. You could memorize Genesis to Revelation, rattle them all off, but if your conclusion still wasn't, Jesus Christ is the only way. See, it's not just this head knowledge. It's not just this, I agree to what it says. The Lord knew what he says in John 6, 61. He knew what was in their heart. He knew that there was not a view of him as being the totality of eternal life. When Jesus asked these questions, and this is, I know this is probably the dumb statement of the day, did he really need to hear their answer? When Jesus asks a question, do you think he's sitting there saying, I'm not sure what they're going to say? No, because he's omniscient. He's God. He already knew. He, he knew what they were thinking. You know, I, I sit back often. I think about those kind of things. You know, I don't say a lot of what I'm thinking. But he knows my, he knows my thoughts. He knows my motive. He knows my intent. He knows everything about me. He knows my murmurings. He knows my complaints. He knows today if I'm really offended by what his sayings are. I, mean, I, I agree with that preacher. I, but deep down, I'm saying, no, I'm offended by this. See, it doesn't matter what I think about 
your profession. It doesn't matter what I think about what you claim to be. What is your heart? What is, what is your, the thoughts and the intents of your heart that nobody else can see but Christ? What do those things say? You know, all it takes anymore to accept somebody as a believer is just them saying, yeah, I'm saved. And we just so easily just take it and we say, okay, well, they made a profession of faith. What are they professing to? And when you start digging and you start pulling things away, you start realizing they're making a profession of something. But it's not this what Christ was claiming as salvation, and it's not what Christ was saying, I am the totality of. The Lord knew what was in their hearts. He knew why they were murmuring. They were offended with his gospel. They weren't offended when he fed them. They weren't offended when he healed them. They weren't offended when he took care of their earthly needs, but when he started speaking the words of eternal life, they were greatly offended. It's an amazing thing. You can talk about Jesus as long as you just talk about what he does to make your life better. But when you talk about Jesus and your need for a Savior and your need for a Redeemer because of the wretched man that you are, they say, that's hateful preaching. No, that's Bible truth. The Apostle Paul, we'll talk about this in the next service. Apostle Paul, remember, said, I will wretched man that I am. Somehow we think we must be a level above that wretchedness that Paul thought himself to be. And I don't know about you, but when I read the life of Paul and I read about Paul's ministry, what Paul did and what Paul said and what Paul stood for, I pale in comparison to Paul's life. And if Paul looked at himself as God before God and he said, I'm a wretched man, what does that make me? Because my life's not demonstrated by three quarters of what Paul's doing. We look at Paul, we say, this is a hero of the faith. Paul didn't consider himself a hero of the faith. If he walked in the front door today and he said, now, hey, make, make me a grand entrance. I'm, you know who I am, right? I'm Paul. He wouldn't say that. He'd be the first one probably on his face before God saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I cannot believe that the Lord Jesus Christ took me from being the chief of the Pharisees, the sinner of all sinners, and he made me one of his glorious own. See, when we start to get a handle on this and we start taking the human element out of all of this and say, listen, you're only in God, you're only in Christ because of his converting grace, you have no other response but humility. There is no, here's what I can do for God, here's how I can make God better. You don't make God better. Even the most fantastic preacher in the world isn't making God any more glorious. He's doing what he's told to do. Proclaim this Christ, feeble as it may be. That's why I said be very, very careful. Be very, very careful about looking at preachers who are preaching Christ, who aren't entertaining enough, who aren't exciting enough, and say, I just don't get anything from them. If they're preaching Christ, you'd be thankful that you've got a man who's actually preaching the Christ of the Bible. And not some of these sermonette things that you're getting in these churches now that are all about, how can I make your life better today? Listen, I don't know a better life than being in Christ. I don't know a better life. Because I don't know where we would be without him. Peter says, where else would we go? Jesus says, if you're offended, he actually gives a statement in verse 62. What and if you see, 
shall see the Son of Man ascending up where he was before. You know what Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He said, what are you going to do then? He's referring back to uh, what he came to this earth to do. If you're offended by what I'm saying now, what's going to be your reaction when all of my words are fulfilled and I enter into the glory of my Father, which I had from the beginning? They had stumbled at, himself, they'd stumbled at Jesus calling himself the bread of life. They had stumbled at Jesus' declaration that he came down from heaven, that he would give his life for sinners. They stumbled at his statement about to obtain life was to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now he's speaking of the most controversial event in history. Do you know what the most controversial event in history is? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's that which separates. There are millions of people all around this world that say Jesus Christ never rose from the grave. I believe, here's what their statement is, I believe that Jesus was the Savior. But that resurrection stuff, don't believe that. You're not a believer. But I prayed a prayer when I was 12. That prayer didn't save you. And if I don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, then what am I believing? I'm believing in a false God because if he didn't raise from the grave, then he's dead and there's no hope for you. And as the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, we're people most miserable if he didn't raise from the grave. It's hard to imagine. Can you imagine not believing that? Something floored me the other day. I saw that there's, I don't even know where it was. I saw it and I was like, wow. There was a, a pastor that came out and actually said that they're atheist. And the congregation said, well, we'll keep you anyway. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not to mention it violated scripture that it was a, and I'm sorry, it was a female pastor, which violates scripture on top of that. So this congregation said, well, that's okay. They were already in error before, and now she claims I'm an atheist, but they say, well, she's so good with the people. Folks, the things that people are believing who would look at you and say, you, you really believe in Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection? You really believe all that? It's a separating doctrine. People ask all the time, what should separate? That's one of them. He's basically telling them, what are you going to do Number one, when they come and get me and I let them take me. What are you going to do when they put me up on a cross? What are you going to do when I die and they put me in a grave? What are you going to do when they come the next three days later and that stone's been rolled away and I'm not there? What are you going to do when I appear to over 500 people before my ascent? What are you going to do then? The most offensive thing could have been to them was the offense of the, of the cross. There were disciples that were offended by words. The words were enough. They took off. But then there were those, Jesus is saying, you could be offended at the cross. But we don't talk about the cross. It's too gory. We don't talk about the cross because it's just not, it's not appropriate for this day and age. And I'm not trying to be foolish here today, but you know the stuff we watch on TV? The cross is too gory. We don't get into that kind of violence. Really. 
Is it the violence that offends you or is it Christ that offends you? I don't think it's the violence. I think it's Christ offends you, that Christ came to hang on that cross for your sins. I think that's the offensive part. I don't think you're offended by the violence because we're in a society, we live in a society today who has grown almost calloused to violence. You know, one of the proofs that it's, one of the root proofs that it's happening, and this is sad, and I'm, I'm not making a political statement, but you know, we used to, everything used to get rattled when there was a single act of violence in a school or a single act of violence, and now we don't even break in on the news anymore. Now we just say, uh-oh, there's school shooting, five dead, and we move on. And what's on our screens? And what our kids are playing, and sadly, adults are playing, should be working. The violence they see, the violence they see there is much, much more, and yet we've grown hardened to it. He wasn't talking about the violence of it. He was talking about the offense of standing with a man who's going to be taken and hung upon a cross, and he's going to be hung between two thieves, which is to identify him that he is the worst of all criminals. Will you stand then? See, it's so easy to stand for Christ while we're in this comfortable building today. And we think we've done something for God. This is the very basic thing you do for God. Everybody says, well, I go to church every time the doors are open. That's what you're supposed to do. It's the basics. The offense is going to come when you're left to make a choice between will you stand for Christ even in the face when the whole crowd's going the other way and you're the only one standing? Will you still stand there? He says, verse 6, 3, it is the spirit that quickeneth. Now, why did he say that? Because he's asking a question that they're thinking is answered in the flesh. In other words, he immediately tells them, here's the question, does this offend you? And what if you shall see the Son of Man ascending up to where he was before? There's two questions. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's basically telling them, you're not going to understand this in the flesh. He's not looking for us to make this human commitment to him and say, okay, I agree. He's telling them literally, Jesus again is pressing upon them what he'd already declared back in John 6, when he said those words, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the father cometh unto me. He knows right then he's talking to men who are not going to understand this, who are not going to accept it. But he tells them why, because it is the spirit that quickeneth. To quicken means to bring back to life. It's the Holy Spirit which quickens us by the word. It's the Holy Spirit which gives life to dead sinners. The reason you have life in you today is not because you resurrected yourself. It's because the Holy Spirit made you alive. He quickened you. He rose you from the dead. We see, he gives us eyes to see Christ as the prophet, priest, and king. He gives us ears to hear the gospel. He gives us hearts to understand and understand the mysteries of his grace. The flesh or the natural mind or the wisdom of man will never understand. What does he say about the flesh? It profiteth nothing. 
Jesus isn't telling them, you just got to get a little bit smarter to accept me, or you got to get smarter. He's saying it's the spirit that quickens. It is the spirit that makes you alive. Now, this makes some people irritated. The flesh profits how much? Nothing. It has no part in the salvation of a sinner. Somehow, over the years, the gospel has been changed into all of Christ to 99% of Christ and 1% of man. The numbers are probably skewed more than that. Some of the watered-down, washed-down gospel I hear now is 50-50. Some of it that I hear is actually going the other way. It's actually 90-10, free will, man. God's 10%. It's getting that bad. We somehow have said, in the flesh, we want you to acknowledge all these things. We want you to accept these in the flesh. And we ask a series of questions that if the mind responds with a yes, 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 then they say, pray this, and you're saved. What happened? If there was not a quickening by the Holy Spirit of God, all they did is had an intellectual assent to acknowledge a standard book of questions. We make the plan of salvation like answering a questionnaire at the BMV. Check no, check yes, check yes, yes, maybe, I don't know, not sure. Okay, well, your check yeses, out, they outweigh your no, so you're probably pretty good there. Okay, you're saved. We ask people, tell me about your conversion. It's still true to this day. Tell me about your conversion. I don't think it's any less than 75% will say this. Well, I prayed. That's how it always starts. Instead of Christ saved me. Christ saved me. I repented. And even that, be careful. Repentance is a gift of God. The Bible clearly teaches that. If I was brought to repentance, it wasn't because I had an intellectual assent to it. It's because my eyes were open to it. That I needed this Savior. The flesh profits nothing. The words of Christ are the words of life. They are the words of eternal life. A person cannot discern spiritual eternal truth who has no spiritual life in them. What are you saying? In order for me to believe, I have to have spiritual life in me. Belief is not this thing that's kind of nebulous thing that kind of hangs out here by itself. Belief is a result of my eyes being opened. I don't open my own eyes by belief. That's what we've taught. We've, we've taught that believe and your eyes will be opened. No, you believe because your eyes were opened. There's a huge difference in what was just said, and Jesus is telling them that way. This is not about you making yourself believe. This is the spirit that has to quicken. But he says, there are some of you that believe not. We'll have to just go have to cut this off for this week. But he said, there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believe not who should betray him. Now, again, remember, I broke those two things off. He wasn't just talking about, Jew he's, he's mentioning betrayal, but he also knows there are those who declares the Lord Jesus knew from the very beginning 
from the foundation of the world who would believe and who would not believe. He also knew who would betray him. His knowledge springs, and we'll talk more about this next week, because this will, this will throw us a little bit in a tailspin. It always does when you mention these words. Christ's knowledge and Christ's words are saying comes not only from his foreknowledge, but from his foreordination. In other words, there's more to this than just Jesus saying, I know who's going to make a choice to accept me. As if he sits back and says, I've done all I can do. Now I'll just wait and see if these wretched people will do the right thing. And I know which ones will do it, but I'm not going to have any part in it. I'm just going to sit back here. I'm going to just watch and see. Now I know ultimately who's going to, but I'm going to watch and see. We've missed it. That's what when Jesus said, and I'll finish with this, John 10, verse 24 through 28. The Bible says, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But because... But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they do what? They follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. That's the sheep. I and my Father are one. Here's the Jews' response. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus was very clear about it. There are some of you that believe not. What's the call to the whole world? What do, we, what do we do as Bible believers do? The call we talk about every time. We preach the gospel to the whole world. Never ever once are we told to withhold the gospel from a single individual, from a single nation, from a single person, from a family. Everybody needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you think of Christ? I'm not to look at a single individual, a single individual and say, this is not for you. I'm not to look at a single place in this world and say, this isn't for you. I'm not even supposed to look at the most wicked, vile, evil person I can think of and say, this is not for you. I'm simply told to preach and proclaim the gospel to the entire world. What happens with that gospel is not as a result of how I presented it. It's not as a result of whether I'm eloquent. It's not a result of whether or not I got the attention of the people. It is, am I preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Never are we told hey, salvation is of the Lord, you don't have to do anything. No, we're, we should actually be, now get this, this again will make some free will people really mad. We should actually be more evangelistic believing this, that salvation is of the Lord. So when someone says, if you believe all that about election, that means you have no concern for evangelism. They're showing you how little they understand. Actually, the glory of this gospel makes you more desires to proclaim the truth and proclaim the gospel that Jesus saves. Let's stand together, if you would.